I'm uh, David Demesa. I'm a professor of management here at LSE. My job this evening is to introduce Richard Thaler. Richard is a professor of economics and behavioral sciences of all places, the University of Chicago, which is uh, where we used to think the home of rational choice theory was, but uh, uh, Richard, I think, is bringing a rather different perspective uh, uh, to Chicago economics and other social sciences. Richard is, of course, well known to us all as the recent author of the book Nudge, but he's much more famous within economics for presenting us with a whole series of challenges to our conventional thinking, a whole series of anomalies, many of which have inspired me during my career. So I'm extremely pleased to welcome Richard here tonight. Now he is more famous to the wider world as a result of Nudge, co-written with Cass Sunstein. He's on YouTube. He's on the London Tube as well, as uh, those locals will probably have seen these big red uh, ads all over the Tube, so it's not exactly a nudge that uh, um, your potential readers are being given. But uh, um, I think the book is having quite a big influence directly and indirectly on uh, President Obama, and um, we're... we're we're led to believe on David Cameron and maybe the Labour government here as well, but whether they actually misread the title being politicians and think it says fudge, not nudge, I'm not sure. But. So without more ado, let, let me uh, uh, pass the microphone uh, to Richard. Uh, Richard will speak for about 35 minutes and then uh, we'll have questions and answers. Thank you very much, David. Um, so that's the cover you should be seeing in the tube. Um, and this is a good time for me to mention my co-author, uh, Cass Sunstein, uh, who is a dear friend. We were colleagues at the University of Chicago for many years. Um, Cass is now... Uh, working for President Obama as the, he has um, the most important job in Washington that no one's ever heard of. He is the head of, well, he will be if confirmed by the Senate, uh, the head of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. Um, I call him the Nudger-in-Chief. And um, so um, anything good that I'm about to say um, is probably his doing. So when we set out to write this book, we had two goals in mind, an ambitious goal and a ridiculously ambitious goal. The ambitious goal was to take the research that I've been doing along with many others, some of whom are in this room, uh, and try and use it to think about important public policy problems. Uh, that was the ambitious goal. The ridiculously ambitious goal was to try to create a sort of political framework, a way, 
a way of thinking about public policy uh, that was neither left nor right. Uh, so I'll let you be the judge as to whether we've achieved either of these goals, but that's what we set out to do. Uh, now, let me start by saying what is behavioral economics. And let me offer a definition uh, that comes from Herb Simon, one of the uh, people who came before the current wave of behavioral economists. Um, Simon says that correctly, that the phrase appears to be a pleonasm, um, which if you don't know what that word means, uh, I had to look it up too. Uh, it's a redundant phrase. And I uh, said, well, it's a pleonasm because, well, really what other kind of economics might there be? Isn't economics about behavior. And uh, the answer, he says, is uh, the answer lies with the specific assumptions made by standard neoclassical economic theory. So what are those assumptions? In, in the book, uh, we refer to the standard economic theory as based on uh, the, the, typically the Latin phrase homo economicus um, and uh, we refer to we try to keep the Latin down in this book so we refer to homo economicus as econs and um, econs which are the basis of economic theory are rather different from homo sapiens uh, who we refer to as humans um, so what are the differences? Well, first of all, uh, econs are very smart. Um, in fact, econs are, by definition, as smart as the smartest economist. Um, and uh, the, the reason for that is that the, the sort of the norms in economic theory are that um, suppose I write down a model of, of some economic agent and then some young guy like Eric comes along and writes down a model in which the agents are smarter than the agents in my model, then uh, his model is taken to be better than my model. And for the last 50 years, economics has evolved to be descriptions of smarter and smarter econs. So uh, econs now can do endless steps of bound, bounded, uh, sorry, backward induction uh, with infinitely <coughs> complex stochastic properties. Uh, they can solve systems of differential equations that it took an economist months to solve himself, but once having solved that problem, the economist then assumes everyone can do it. So uh, humans, of course, aren't quite that bright. Um, they have trouble with long division if they don't have a calculator handy and um, uh, are often absent-minded. Uh, humans also have limited attention. Uh, 
Uh, most of you are politely at least trying to look like you're listening to me, but some of you are having a peek at your blackberries uh, or thinking about where you're going to head for dinner afterwards. Uh, so uh, humans have a lot of things on their minds. The, the second thing that distinguishes humans from econs is that we humans have self-control problems. Um, it, at least since Adam and Eve, uh, well, men at least have uh, <laughs> self-control problems, especially uh, when confronted with apples, women, and snakes. Uh, so uh, m many of us have trouble saving. Um, uh, many of us weigh more than we should and uh, sometimes wake up with hangovers. Uh, uh, no econ has ever had a hangover. Um, uh, finally, humans are a bit nicer than econs. I, I won't say anything about economists, but uh, humans are nicer than econs. Uh, econs are unboundedly unscrupulous. Um, if you ask, you know, suppose out in the front you asked an econ uh, what time it is, and it, now most of you, if we ask what time it is, you, you just look at your watch, not, not if you're an econ. An econ views this as a strategic opportunity and uh, says, well, maybe if I tell the guy uh, that, uh, you know, 10 minutes later than it is, then I'll go in and get a better seat. Um, so, uh, so that's what uh, humans and econs are like. Now, there's a, a last bit that adds up to behavioral economics because uh, the first part really could be psychology. Uh, to make this into economics, we need to add some markets. And we have to ask the question, what happens when humans interact with econs in markets? And for the last 20 years ago, I've been thinking about that question. Um, there's a field that's come to be called behavioral finance that deals with that. I'm not going to talk about that tonight. Um, so, uh, But uh, instead, I'm going to just show you one picture um, that I claim is the single best evidence against the law of one price, which is the fundamental working principle of efficient market theory. <laughs> now, this is an actual picture that was taken in Buenos Aires. Uh, some of my economist friends claim that this is not a uh, contradiction of the law of one price, that this is rational price discrimination against dumb Americans <laughs> who not only don't know the Spanish phrase for orange juice, but uh, are too stupid to realize that the, <laughs> these, these two pictures are identical. Uh, but uh, that's actually all I'm going to say about uh, efficient markets. If, if you, after the list, last six months, you are still convinced that markets are efficient, uh, you should probably leave now and go to the go to the movies. I, I would say. So, 
The approach that Cass and I take in this book is uh, what we call libertarian paternalism. Now, uh, both of those terms are extremely unpopular in the US um, and I think pretty much around the world. Um, libertarians, well, it, lib libertarians are popular actually at my own university and uh, in a few rural counties in Montana. But uh, uh, otherwise, they're hard to find. Uh, and paternalists are despised everywhere. And uh, so our idea was to combine two reviled, contradictory phrases uh, and write a book about that. So um, here I am today. Um, but w what we think is actually both terms are lovable and can be combined sensibly together. So by libertarian, all we mean is uh, choice preserving. So we try to devise policies that uh, do not take away anyone's uh, freedom to choose. By paternalism, we simply mean helping people make better choices as judged by themselves. So we don't think we have any special insight into what makes people happy. We don't think politicians do either, but we think that uh, politicians and all of us should be trying to help people make better decisions as judged by themselves. One way to think about it is to help them make the decisions they would make if they had all the time and expertise uh, to take to make each decision. Now, how do you achieve this? You do it with a phrase that we call choice <coughs> architecture. So, who is a choice architect? Choice architect is anyone who designs the environment in which we choose. So, suppose you go to a restaurant tonight, the chef will have decided uh, what he or she is cooking, there will be someone else whose job it is to write that down on a menu. And think about all of the choices that are involved in formulating that menu. Um, what order to present things, how to group them. Should the cold starters be grouped with the hot starters or should they be in a separate category? Well, to an econ, none of this would matter. The econ would immediately seize upon the utility maximizing uh, choice subject to the budget constraint. Um, but for uh, the rest of us, small features of the environment can matter, and so choice architects matter. Now, here's the most important point I will make tonight. There's no such thing as neutral choice architecture any more than there's such a thing as neutral architecture. Whoever built this building built a real building with doors, and this room is heavily influenced by where the doors are, where the stage is, and that's true for new buildings as well. So here's a thought experiment that we use to motivate <coughs> the book. Suppose the director of school cafeterias for some city, call it London, uh, discovers <coughs> that the order in which the food is displayed influences what people eat. 
Now that's surely true. Uh, what what uh, should she make of this? How should she use that information? Well, she could arrange the food to, all things considered, try to make the kids healthier. But she could also try to make the kids fatter. Or she could make a principled stand and arrange the food at random, fooling herself into thinking that she's avoiding choice architecture. But of course, that's folly, since a random assortment is an assortment, probably the one that will make the kids take the longest amount of time to figure out what they're going to eat. The peanut butter is in one place and the jelly is somewhere else. Uh, it'll be hard to make a sandwich. Um, or she could, uh, she could feature the items for which she gets the largest bribes. Um, all of these are possible, and the basic point is you have to pick something. So given that you have to pick something, why not pick something good? That's the main point. You can leave now if you choose. Uh, now, the next point is that some designs are better than others. So the, this figure comes from a wonderful book that was an inspiration to us in writing our book by a guy called Don Norman. It's called The Design of Everyday Things. And uh, he talks about this stove. You probably have a stove like that at home. And um, it's got four burners and four knobs. And uh, to turn on that burner, you know you have to turn one of these knobs. And if you're sitting up in the back, you probably can't read uh, the writing here, which is puts you in the same situation as someone my age actually operating the stove. <laughs> and uh, I find I have a stove like that at home, and I'm about 60-40 to turn the right knob. To <laughs> now, if you look at the stove on the right, we haven't labeled the knobs, but no one would ever turn the wrong knob. So uh, some designs are better than others. Uh, why not pick good ones? So uh, this has become the most famous example from the book. It's one sentence in the book. But uh, this is a picture, women, avert your eyes. Um, this is a picture of the urinal in the uh, men's toilet in Amsterdam. You can see there's something in there. Here's a blow-up. And it's, uh, there's the image of a housefly that has been etched into the urinal. Now, it, it turns out that uh, when men go uh, take, take care of their business, uh, they're not paying a lot of attention to the task at hand. They have much more important things to think about, like the football scores or things like that. And uh, but, uh, and I, I'm sure there's an evolutionary uh, reason for this. If, <laughs> if if you give a man a target, he will aim. <laughs> so. Uh, so uh, they put that fly in there, and according to the airport, uh, spillage <laughs> has been reduced by 80%. Uh, 
Now, that fly has become, for me, my image of a nudge. So what, what is a nudge? A nudge is some small feature of the environment that captures our attention and alters our behavior. So what are the principles of good choice architecture? We have a chapter on this. Um, I, I, I don't have time to talk about all six, so I'll just talk about the first few. Um, defaults, default options are what happens if you do nothing. Now, typically what happens if you do nothing is nothing happens. But sometimes when you do nothing, something happens. Like you sit at your computer or you answer the phone, you go away for a while, you come back, the screensaver has come on. That in and of itself was a default option, how long it takes for that to happen. Um, we find ourselves watching some television show for no reason other than it's on the same channel as the show we had been watching previously. Uh, one thumb click turns out to be too much trouble uh, to switch to another channel or turn the bloody thing off. Now, there's lots of evidence that shows that default options are sticky, that whatever default option you pick is likely uh, to be selected. So choice architects need to be very careful in choosing which should be the default. So uh, one example is in pension schemes. Uh, typically, when somebody becomes eligible for defined contribution pension scheme, they get a bunch of forms to fill out. And if they don't fill it out, then nothing happens. The default is not to join. Uh, what some companies in the US have done is adopted automatic enrollment, which just flips the default so that uh, if you don't do anything, you're enrolled in the plan at some savings level and some investment policy. Uh, that turns out to greatly speed the rate at which people join. This principle has been adopted by uh, Adair Turner's uh, national pension saving scheme that's due to start here in a couple of years. Uh, now, another subtle example uh, is organ donations. In uh, the U.S. and the U.K., uh, we have an opt-in system for do organ donations. If you want to donate your organs, you have to do something, sign some form. Some European countries have adopted an opt-out system that's sometimes called presumed consent, where um, you, you are supposed to give your consent unless you fill out some form. And uh, actually, the UK is thinking of switching uh, to that system. And there's been a big uproar about that, uh, in part because some people, particularly uh, the Muslim community, uh, object to you presuming anything about their body parts. So, uh, well, what should we do there? Uh, there's actually a very happy compromise that we use in the state I live in, uh, Illinois, that's called mandated choice. The way this works is when you go to get your driver's license renewed, there are two boxes 
and you must pick one of them, either donor or not donor. You, you can't get your driver's license unless you tick one of those boxes. The previous system had been opt-in. It was still on the back of your license, but no one ever bothered to do it. So uh, th this system is uh, working very well. It was introduced with zero fanfare and zero objections and completely solves the sensitive problem of uh, presumed consent. It has the additional advantage that uh, with presumed consent, sometimes families object and uh, override the donor's wishes, and they're more likely to do that if the donor's choice was implicit rather than explicit. So uh, with mandated choice, the uh, donor made an active choice, and family members uh, are less likely to complain. Uh, a second principle of choice architecture is to give feedback. We know from psychology that we can't learn unless we get feedback. A nice example of this is if you paint a ceiling, like the one in this room, it's painted white, most ceilings are painted white. It can be difficult to paint because you can't see what you're doing. It's white on top of white, and you only see the places you missed when, you, when the paint dries, and you see that old white that looks quite different from the new white. Um, so some genius invented a paint that goes on pink and turns white. And that solves the problem. Digital cameras uh, have the same feature. You take a picture, you immediately see what you've taken, and you avoid the problem that those of us who are old enough to remember film cameras of spending a delightful day taking pictures with a camera that had no film in it. Uh, now here's a practical application of giving feedback. Um, there, uh, one county in California installed something they called the ambient orb, uh, which is just a light bulb that glows the more energy you're using. And the, the, the brighter, the more energy you use, the brighter it gets. Simply installing that in people's homes reduced energy use in peak periods by 40%. Here's another thing you can do. You can give people information about what others are doing. So if you tell people, turn off your air conditioners, um, uh, or it's important for the environment, or you should be a good citizen. None of those things have any effect. If you say uh, your neighbors are turning off their fans and air conditioners, that works. Now, um, here's a new idea that we introduce in the book that I think uh, is w what we're pushing now and what I'm pushing Cass to push. Um, <coughs> And it's actually a very simple idea that, w that wherever the government requires disclosure, they should supplement that with a requirement for electronic disclosure. So here's how it would work. Um, let's say for credit cards, if you have a credit card, your credit card company would be required once a year to send you two electronic files. 
The first would be uh, essentially a spreadsheet of all the price formulas they use. So suppose you send in a check one day late and they charge you a fine of 20 pounds and, uh, and they raise your interest rate by 200 basis points. That would be in there. If when you buy something in euros they charge you 2% conversion, that would be in there. The second file would be a list of your personal data the way you use the credit card. Now, what, well, you're probably thinking, well, no human would use these files. That's right. But we're confident that if those data existed, websites would emerge that with one click would allow you to process that information. We predicted that confidently when we wrote the book. And um, that now those websites already exist, although they have to get the data the hard way. There's, um, uh, we don't need that. Um, sorry. There's a, uh, uh, a website in the States that started recently that's called billshrink.com. If you're interested in this, you could go to their website. Uh, now, since we don't have this disclosure law, what they have to do, the price data, they have to scrape off of the posted prices on the internet for those who provide it. And the usage data, they have to get people to punch in. And most people don't know. So uh, you can, their website would give you a sense of how you could start with this, but they could improve it greatly if, um, if they had electronic disclosure. Now, it's not really possible to talk in these days without mentioning the financial crisis. Um, let me show you a quote from uh, Alan Greenspan's Mia Culpa. Uh, he says, those of us who looked to the self-interest of lending institutions to protect shareholders' equity, myself especially, are in a state of shocked disbelief. It's like the line from Casablanca. Uh, Such counterparty surveillance is a central pillar of our financial market state of balance. If it fails, as occurred this year, market stability is undermined. And then he went on to say, to the most sophisticated investors in the world, these mortgage-backed securities were wrongly viewed as a steal. So those are the mistakes he owned up to. He didn't diagnose them. So let's think about what was the cause. The cause was he was thinking that people were econs. So let's suppose people are humans. Well, uh, the human factor came into play at both levels, at every level of our financial structure. At the lowest level, the, the people who were borrowing, especially these subprime mortgages that started this whole mess, uh, mortgages have gotten very complicated. Not enough has been written about the role of complexity and the increasing complexity in 
creating the mess that we're now in. So it used to be very easy to pick a mortgage. There used to be one kind of mortgage. It was a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. And there was one number you had to look at, which was the interest rate. That was it. In the US, we passed something called the Truth in Lending Act that required all banks to disclose the interest rate in the same way, uh, the annual percentage rate. And that was it. You find the lowest number, done. Uh, it's like finding the lowest price uh, for uh, your favorite brand of beer. Now, uh, and it's as simple as that. Now we have mortgages that have prepayment penalties and variable rates and teaser rates and balloon payments, and they can be linked to various uh, interest rates. It's very complicated. Most economists I know don't feel comfortable that they're choosing the best possible mortgage. Now, uh, uh, now that's not very a very surprising thing to say. Perhaps what's more surprising, and it really gets at the heart of, of uh, hold my cell phone. Don't call. Your secrets. Don't call. Safe it. With me. Don't call anyone. Uh, uh, the complexity also infected uh, the behavior of CEOs. Uh, there were many CEOs of big companies in the US and all around the world who had no idea the risks that their employees were taking. Some of those companies no longer exist. And um, the, it's the same fact that those CEOs are boundedly rational. They can't possibly know the details of all the trades that all their employees are taking uh, when those trades are so complicated. Uh, now, what about bounded willpower? Many of the people who took out these mortgages did so because their neighbors took out a new mortgage and put an addition on their house or bought a new car or a television set. Uh, so, we had social comparison and envy working. Well, again, that was also true for companies. You know, the CEO goes out and plays golf with his buddy, the CEO at another investment bank who brags that they made $300 million, uh, selling credit default swaps last year. Why, you know, you're not doing that? What's wrong with you? You know, how are you going to buy your next yacht? So, uh, the, the uh, bounded willpower uh, came into play uh, at the top and at the bottom, just like bounded rationality. So, I'm almost done. What are the solutions? I think there's a trap we can easily fall into. And it's a trap in saying that we need very heavy regulation. That we need to be telling financial institutions what kinds of products they can sell. Maybe we should ban uh, mortgage securitization or credit default obligations. Um, or maybe we should nationalize the banks and run them, the government should run them. 
I think these are huge mistakes. Uh, these companies were too difficult for the CEOs to run with their highly skilled team. There's no one in government that's capable of doing it either. Uh, I gave a talk this morning uh, to uh, a, a group uh, in the government. I gave a talk a month or so ago in Washington to a group of Treasury executives, uh, permanent staff at the Treasury Department. I asked there, how many of you feel competent to take over Citicorp? Needless to say, there was no one in the room. I don't, I don't think uh, Larry Summers is capable of running Citicorp either. And uh, so, uh, it would be foolish for us as governments to get into that business. They're not capable of doing it. So, what what do I propose instead? Uh, again, I come back to disclosure. If, if we had a better idea what these companies were doing, not only would the regulators have do a better job of oversight, but the market would do a better job of oversight. The, the people who were buying insurance from AIG, insurance called credit default swaps, had no way of knowing how exposed AIG was to a small uh, turn in the uh, rate of real estate appreciation. Um, there were many people who were suspicious of Madoff, uh, but had no way of checking what he was doing. I think if we point ourselves toward better disclosure, and then we can get the whole market involved in in the oversight and regulation process. That doesn't mean that nudging can do everything. We have laws against fraud. We need to keep those laws and strengthen those laws, but laws against fraud don't do any good if you can't watch the people who are committing the fraud. Okay. Uh, the last point I will make about this is I think better disclosure will often help the company run itself. Bob Rubin has admitted to not having heard the term liquidity put. Citibank lost $50 billion selling liquidity puts. Now, Bob Rubin is one of the smartest people ever to be in government or on Wall Street. And uh, nevertheless, he wasn't aware of everything that was going on in Citicorp. We can't expect some regulator to do that either. Okay, let me conclude. We humans are imperfect. We need all the help we can get. It's possible to improve choices without restricting options. Don't use bans and mandates, just nudge. Thank you very much. So we're going to take questions. I think there are 
people with microphones. Uh, just, just on your um, point about uh, the government being unable to, to run Citigroup or any other major bank, isn't this also the point about uh, bonuses with AIG, that by giving in to a populist uh, surge or torrent of abuse in the media and elsewhere, government may actually cut off its uh, nose to spite, spite its face because uh, basically you need to keep those bankers and AIGs. They are the only ones who understand how to unravel the extremely complex uh, financial instruments that they themselves invented and that if you actually lose them, lose those people um, by not paying them bonuses, uh, then you'll actually lose a lot more money. Well, who, who asked that question? Ah, okay. Yeah, when you ask a question, wave at me, since it, otherwise it's just a voice in the wilderness. Uh, obviously, I think that uh, I think there's a, a point to that. Uh, now, the fact that 50 of those people are, have already left somewhat undercuts that point. Um, I do think that the law that uh, was passed in the House of Representatives in the U.S. to tax those bonuses at 90% is obscene. And um, I'm hoping that the Senate will, it's usually the wiser uh, branch of, uh, of our Congress that will see that we, we can't start passing taxes on the income of anybody we don't like. Um, but uh, I, I, I would, if, if I were proposing regulation of compensation in financial firms, it would not be about the level. Uh, my own personal suggestion would be to require that the money be smooth. So uh, say anybody who makes more than, say, a million dollars a year, two million dollars a year, pick your number, uh, half of it has to be held in escrow or paid in restricted stock um, with clawback. And I think that would uh, solve a lot of these problems. Um, people were what, what people were engaged in something I call selling earthquake insurance. If you there are students here, here's a scheme if you want to go get rich. Start selling earthquake insurance in California. Charge half the price of anybody else. And set yourself up in your company in some safe haven like the Bahamas. And just sell this insurance until there's an earthquake. And then go to the Bahamas and hire a lot of guards. <laughs> now, right, this is a this is a guaranteed way to get rich unless you're unlucky enough to have an earthquake come the first year. But that's what credit default swaps were. That's exactly what they were. They, they were selling insurance uh, for people in case they don't pay off their mortgages, which was only going to happen if real estate prices stopped going up. Now, we knew that was going to happen sometime. There will be an earthquake in California, and real estate prices eventually go down um, and 
that's a profitable business if you can escape to the bahamas or almost as good just stop getting paid so if i make ten million dollars a year selling credit default stops swaps until the real estate market plummets and then i just go to my house in the hamptons that's not such a bad deal so smoothing i think would help a lot ok next question yeah right over here yes hi i'm interested in the context of libertarian paternalism in the context of house so for example if the government were designing a sort of framework around childhood obesity and trying to address that or prevention health prevention issues and how potentially government could use the concept of nudge well you know i think it's a great question and let me say that there's actually a contest going on you can find a link to it on our blog if you go to nudges dot org somebody is having a contest for choice architecture ideas for health and so you can see what people are coming up with there are also some experiments being run so the cafeteria example i began with was hypothetical but there's a guy called brian wansink at cornell who wrote a wonderful book called mindless eating and he has this wonderful experiment where he gives people bottomless bowls of tomato soup they're bottomless because he's created a tube that goes into the bowl so you eat and you just the soup bowl keeps replenishing people will eat gallons of soup if they because their mothers told them to finish so you know new york has passed a law that says you have to post the calories in fast food restaurants this is very low cost especially if you just do it for fast food restaurants so i think it's only for places that have more than ten shops so it doesn't cost very much it's quite informative i was in a store in new york a couple weeks ago there was a muffin that was seven hundred calories and donut two hundred calories and i would have got that one wrong so i think there are lots of those ideas and if you go to that contest and uh... if you have your own ideas submitted the prize for winning this contest is 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 not enormous i think a few thousand dollars but there's a foundation robert wood johnson foundation that's prepared to put millions into the winning ideas so uh... at some level the stakes are quite large yeah right next to do you believe the u.s. government should follow the example of the former italian government in publishing all of the tax returns all of the tax returns over in the country in the interest of fuller disclosure oh that's uh... i thought uh... okay no i won't go there uh... well no i i don't think that even publishing the names of the people who are getting these bonuses 
I don't think is quite right. I, I think people have a right to privacy. Um, in the states, we have laws that the top five people in any company have to essentially get their income disclosed. Um, I, I don't, disclosing everyone's income is not a, a good thing for society because it makes everyone miserable. And it, we had the following experiment done at the University of Chicago Business School a few years ago. We, we moved into a new building. And so we had to, faculty had to be assigned to offices. And so they decided to set up, for you American football fans, like a draft. And so uh, there was a list. And the first person got to pick any office, and then the second person got any of the ones left, and so forth. So. As soon as they published that list, which was not based on seniority, it was based on some decision by the dean's office of who merited nice offices, there was months of misery. And the offices aren't all that different. Uh, so, I mean, social comparison is invidious. And, uh, you know, I don't mind what my salary is as long as my friend Peter Ayton isn't getting 10 pounds more than me. So, uh, no, I don't like that idea. Okay, let's go over here. Thank you. Um, you mentioned the example of um, turning off the fans and that sort of thing and, and showing how social comparison helped, you know, helped having an effect there. But um, it, was, it was a 6% effect. Um, it's, not, it's not a kind of a, uh, a planet-saving effect. Right. Um, and just sort of going on to the sort of thing about the banks and sort of your, you, you seem to be suggesting quite a lot of wari wariness about regulation. Um, there's kind of a big spectrum between sort of disclosure on one hand and on the other hand the government's taking over the banks and kind of making every decision for them. How far kind of along that spectrum do you feel comfortable to go? Well, let me say two things about that. First, I'd, let's not scoff at 6%. Or 2%, actually. There's one experiment where just sending information about the neighbor's consumption in the bill saves 2%. That's 2% for free. And climate change is going to mostly be about small changes. Now, but how are we going to get the big stuff? It's got to be with a carbon tax. There's no other way around it call it cap-and-trade because it's politically more popular. Uh, but the, the, it's the same thing. Uh, the, look, I mean, and uh, that you have to get the incentives right. So, uh, but even once, once you get the incentives right, that's not going to work if people don't know what prices they're paying. So, Get the incentives right and then have the thermostat tell you how much it costs you to, well, you don't have to worry about lowering the thermostat here, but think of raising the thermostat. Um, um, then, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I spent a few months visiting uh, INSEAD uh, Business School in Fontainebleau, and when you make a phone call there, the costs, there's a running meter uh, on the phone, you know, that, that cut a lot of conversations short. 
so i think it's get the prices right and then get the feedback right and that is going to lead you know obviously we're going to have to have technological innovation but that will come if we get the prices right can we get a microphone to this lady in black thank you I'm thinking about the kind of social policy end of things I know I ought to lose weight and I ought to do my bit for saving the planet and you've given some examples of how nudge can help me along the way when my willpower may not be as great as it could be what about areas where perhaps I haven't had that initial acknowledgement that perhaps I ought to do something in that direction perhaps there isn't any motivation there yet are there any examples where you know you can find areas where nudge works where perhaps people haven't even got to that mindset already well I think that's probably going to be the first step in anything right so smoking started with warning labels and then the nudges have gotten harsher and harsher and the taxes have gotten higher and higher I think that's where we are with climate change you know ten years ago it wasn't on the radar screen very much it's getting there and that will be the first step so I mean we can make people change their behavior through their wallet we can make them change their behavior by making the information feedback more visible and we can make them change their behavior because they care and it's going to require all three yes back here giving exercise to the microphone thanks I just want to ask how choice architecture and nudging could refrain from pushing an agenda or if you're saying it's reasonable to push a good agenda and how you would avoid the accusation of constraining that sacred individual liberty to decide what is good well you know I'm nudging you to accept my agenda so I don't think I'm against agendas you know my agenda is creating a better world with freedom of choice you might have a different agenda you know people sometimes accuse Cass and I of being in favor of the nanny state I think it's just the opposite the nanny state is telling you not to eat that muffin we're going to try to nudge you but give you the right to eat that muffin now it's perfectly reasonable for somebody to say no we should have a nanny state I know what's best you shouldn't eat that muffin young lady you know that's what your mother told you that is paternalism right we think paternalism makes sense for parents parentalism if you prefer 
but uh, that doesn't happen to be my political philosophy. So I, I would... The, the book is really, I think of it as an exercise in saying how far can we go in achieving social goals without forcing anybody to do anything. Now, we can't get all the way. We, we're we're going to have laws against murder. We're going to have laws against drunk driving. Um, when there are externalities, we ha we have to do something. That's why we uh, that's why we need pollution taxes. That's why we have a congestion tax in London. That I think uh, my my well, you guys would all know better than me. But my impression is people are reasonably happy with it. Although I'm sure not everyone is. Uh, but the traffic does seem to be better. Um, so there, you know, I am a University of Chicago economist. I believe there are no free lunches. Yes, Peter. Uh, let's bring the microphone over here. Right now is a sort of brilliant time to be a behavioral economist. Your, your quote of um, Herb Simon sort of reminded me what I think about behavioral economists, which is really they're psychologists, and we call them behavioral economists to spare economists' blushes. Now, I don't know how many economists there are in the Treasury, say, in the UK right now. I don't have a very clear idea about that. Dozens, maybe hundreds, I'm not sure. I have a clearer idea of how many psychologists there might be in the Treasury. I doubt there's even one. Don't you think the consequence, you've given some great examples of how, you know, there's specific case studies, but don't you think the kind of, the broader consequence of the ideas you've been given is, is that we should sort of nudge these people out of the way and move some more behaviorally oriented people into positions of power? Well, uh, you know, my co-author is nudger-in-chief in the U.S. Uh, there are several behavioral economists uh, working in the Obama administration in very high positions. Uh, and I don't consider Cass. He's a lawyer. Uh, so not counting Cass. Um, Jeremy Stein is Larry S Summers' uh, chief deputy. Uh, Alan Kruger is uh, deputy secretary of the treasury. I could go on. Um, and uh, several of us are involved in, in an effort to uh, write a series of white papers on behavioral insights onto various questions. Um, and there will be psychologists involved in that effort. I would hope that similar efforts would uh, take place over here. Yeah, right. Uh, there's a woman right here. Save your steps. Thank you very much for a fantastic presentation. I'm just wondering, that sort of your statement that improving choices without restricting options to me assumes that both choices and options are good. So how does it actually stand in the face of uh, psychology theory, for example, Barry Schwartz um, maximizing satisfied return of choice, that actually more choices can be negative because they paralyze decision-making capacity? Right. So I think I, I part company a little with Barry. Uh, um, so he goes into the supermarket and is alarmed at how many choices there are. Um, I'm not so alarmed uh, at the supermarket. I, I don't 
But there's a chapter in the book about the Swedish Social Security privatization where there are 700 funds to choose from. That's alarming to me. You don't have to go to the biggest supermarket. You can go to the smaller one if you choose to. I don't... I've been known to have a glass of wine on occasion. I don't shop at the biggest wine shop in Chicago. I shop at a small one that has a purveyor who has a good taste and knows my taste. So I think there are ways of solving these problems. We talk about, in the book, providing what we call structured choice environments in complex situations. So what I've recommended to 401k providers, pension funds in the U.S., it used to be in a typical defined contribution pension plan, there were half a dozen choices. Now it can be 50. We have over 100 at the University of Chicago. That's bewildering. And there is research by Sheena Iyengar that shows that when there are more choices, people take longer to join. So what's the solution to that? What we propose is a structured choice where you're first asked, do you want the default investment? Yes or no? If yes, done. You want the house wine? Yes or no? Done. All right, now we can move one level. Here are five balanced funds that vary by risk. You want to pick one of those. Okay, now you think you know something? Sure, here's 400 funds picked. And so that's the choice architecture that I prefer. There's a gentleman back here. Hi. I'm just curious what happens to classical economics when the econs are taken out. What does it do to economics in five, ten years? Yeah. Well, first of all, we probably don't take them out. I think the most interesting economics, at least in market economics, you want to have some econs there and let them, like the mortgage brokers were econs. And so the interesting economics is where you have econs and humans interacting. And you see, one way of phrasing the question is, when does the invisible hand lead people to get the best possible mortgage? And I'm not going to give you an answer to that. But the hints are you want repeat business, which wasn't taking place in the subprime mortgage business. You want people to be able to experience. People don't go to the same bad restaurant over and over because they can taste the food. So when people can learn and there's repetition, then the invisible hand can do a pretty good job. When it's one-shot deals and the 
products are very complicated, then the market will tend to reward the most deceptive sellers rather than the most reliable sellers. So, I mean, this is where economics is right now, is trying to think through, I mean, there are many things interesting going on in economics, but on this point, there are people who are working on better models of humans, and then people working on models of econs and humans interacting. And, but it's a new field. There's lots to do. If you're a student, get busy. Okay, in the back. And somebody will have to tell me when we're supposed to stop. Thank you, Professor Taylor. I just wanted to ask you a question about the previous example that you were giving with respect to the structured plans that you could give people. The idea of giving a person one choice and then having them ignore the other 700 or whatever it may be seems to be in some way ignoring the possibility of the person having more choices than they could. I mean, are you saying that you'd be telling the person in the beginning that they have 700 choices, or would you not be telling them and then you'd just kind of be ignoring the fact that they don't really know what's going on? I would tell them there are 700 choices, but that they don't have to think about them all. Okay. And in the same vein, like with the cafeteria. We've all been to restaurants that have a wine list that's six inches deep, and that's off-putting to many people, and they'll ask the waiter to make a recommendation. And so the way to avoid the paralysis that this question was about and the problems that Barry Schwartz talks about is to not confront people with the necessity of choosing among the 700 choices. That if they want, there's a house red. Here it is. Okay. Thank you. Right past the down here to. To completely separate points, but since one follows on to the last question, would it be fair to sort of summarize your paternal liberalism as saying that what you're effectively doing is being paternalist for people who don't have strong feelings about an issue, but those who have very strong feelings about an issue, you're still allowing them to override the nudge. So that's sort of one point. The other is on your disclosure as a solution to money of the current banking and other problems. I'm a bit worried because on one hand you stress, I think correctly, bounded rationality and the ability to process information. And if you think about disclosure, actually deciding what could be disclosed, in principle there are a virtually infinite number of trades. You could, in principle, disclose every single trade undertaken by a large bank. And I'm just wondering how you get the balance on that point. They are two completely separate issues. Yeah. So I think your first point I pretty much agree with. There's a paper written by a bunch of friends of ours. Colin Kammerer was the lead author on what they call asymmetric paternalism. And the idea of that was to try to protect the least sophisticated people while causing the least harm to the more sophisticated. And that's a cousin to our idea, a very friendly cousin. On the disclosure, this is something I've been doing a lot of thinking about with some colleagues. I think 
it's easier in some domains than others. So, for, like for example, for credit cards, I think it's a, there's a finite list of attributes, finite list of ways they charge you, and uh, the, there's advances in uh, computer languages that allow uh, all the information to be provided in a simple way. Uh, I don't think that it would necessarily be impossible to have a bank provide information on all the trades. Now, I mean, computationally, I don't think it's a problem. They have all those records. Uh, and someone would have the machine uh, machinery to process it. Now, again, we have privacy issues. The, here's the needle we have to thread with financial regulation, in my view. We, we have to force them to disclose enough that they can't cause another crisis without preventing them from making money. So we can't expect a hedge fund to tell us every trade they make uh, or they're out of business because I can just copy them and avoid paying them all that money. Um, but I think we can certainly ask them to tell us their leverage ratios. We may be able to ask them to disclose their trades with a lag. Uh, I, I don't know. These... I don't have all the answers to that, but I think conceptually that's what we should be aiming at. We can't expect to have the government run hedge funds. Now, you can reasonably ask whether we need hedge funds. I think in the U.S. we were spending 15% of our money on financial services uh, when this all started. Uh, that seems high to me. Um, it's even more than we spend on lawyers. Um, oh, my co-author's a lawyer. But he's a constitutional lawyer, so that's really okay. I think one last question, and then we'll call it a night. Uh, maybe uh, right, right over here. Thank you. Um, picking up on the similar point, really, about disclosure and, and how you saw that as a, as a potential solution to the financial crisis. Could you just um, elucidate how, how you see this idea of disclosure as being different to kind of the, the neoclassical economics because the econs typically need a, a sort of free flow of information and the better information they have, so classical theory goes, the better their choices will be. I, I just wondered how, how yours is dissimilar because presumably in a complex banking financial environment, this, this, this information isn't neutral, it has to be interpreted, it has to be uh, go through all sorts of complex mathematical models. How, how, do, right. how do we humans understand that stuff? So, you know, we started thinking about disclosure uh, about, there, there's uh, recently uh, in the U.S. they added a prescription drug coverage plan called Medicare Part D. And um, the Bush administration wanted it to have as many choices as possible. And it was considered bewildering to most people. And that was where we first started thinking about the power of disclosure. The, 
the insurance companies know what drugs you're consuming. But if in order for you to choose among the plans, you have to type in an endless list of all those drugs. And if you're old, it's an endless list that grows every year. Um, now, if you're old, and this is a, a plan for uh, the elderly, uh, it's very predictable what drugs you're going to take. It's the same drugs you took last year plus one. So, so there we wanted disclosure so that, again, websites could come in and help people. It's providing the personal usage data that allows a third party to help you shop. Now, as our thinking has grown, some of this I don't think you need to divert very far from neoclassical economics to want disclosure. But the, the point I would make is one of the – I've been getting to know people who are in these website businesses now. There's one, uh, one company I met that uh, rates uh, 401K plans in the U.S. by company. So now they have to get that data. Well, that's another long story. But the, the, the government had made it as difficult as possible for them to get the data that companies are required to report to the government. The, I'm happy to say that the second day that President Obama was in power, he issued an executive order uh, saying that the presumption is the government will release data, which will make this problem go away. But I'm getting to your point. Uh, I, I gave a talk to a big group at Stanford a, a couple weeks ago that had a, a bunch of corporate types. And I asked, how many of you are on corporate boards? About 50 hands went up. Uh, I said, how many of you know, think you know how good the pension plan is at your company that you're on the board of? No hands went up. I think they're most likely to learn how good the plan is through this website. So, so I think the sort of surprising and deep point is that disclosure may help companies understand their own businesses. And outsiders will provide the insight. I think outsiders might have explained to Bob Rubin how much risk Citicorp was taking with liquidity puts. everybody, uh, Richard, could I just tell you about the final phase of the activity, which is there's going to be a book signing. The books are available outside the old theatre, if I may put it vulgarly, for sale. Uh, you're um, actually required <laughs> to buy a book. <laughs> and uh, then Richard um, will sign them on the stage, so if you make your way uh, back to the stage, maybe there can be uh, one line out, another line back to the <laughs> uh, checkout. Um, and uh, could, could I just remind you that your neighbours are buying it? Well done. <laughs> and finally, 
most of the people here have been humans, and I'm sure they've really enjoyed and found extremely stimulating your talk and the questions and answers. And thank you very much, Richard. Thank you.